Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fourth interception for the Jets defense. Whoa, oh boy. Oh boy. Manny Hill, that was uh that was not good. All right, so it's Mackie and Judd, the first uh the first local and uh, live show on the station for a while. There are more upcoming announcements to come. So don't tweet us. We know. We know you want more local and live more programming. More is coming. We that, promise. That you. is coming. You must be patient. I don't blame you for not being patient. I'm not patient. Manny's not patient. Hopefully, but you you're a little more patient. patient than Detroit Lions fans are probably. Exactly right. Now. right. Uh, <laughs> so, so the show is Mackie and Judd. Phil will be on uh, from four to six. Matthew Collar also joins at five o'clock. First hour of the show, uh, we will be joined by Jason Stark. It is Zolgad. It is Manny Hill. And you just heard that highlight. I got uh, a confession to make, Manny. Okay. So yesterday I said National Football League Week One. Don't judge. Right. Because you look at the Saints. The Saints lost to Tampa Bay. Oh, my God. The Saints are in trouble. They're not going to be as good as we thought. Right. Um, I've got one bold prediction to make about something I think might be a trend. I think the Minnesota Vikings, the Chicago Bears, and the Green Bay Packers might owe the Lions a thank you note. Matt Patricia. I don't think it's going to (laughs) work. After one game, I don't think it's going to work. He went in there. And, you know, the whole Belichick thing, right? He was going to yeah. run them, and he was going to show them who's boss. And I, I honestly believe that in 1985 or 1994, that was a really good idea, and it probably worked. I think this is going to be the latest, and we can certainly dissect this, in a line of Belichick protege failures. Because uh, I think that the Detroit Lions might be a team that takes several steps backwards as this hard-nosed coach tries to get the most from athletes in 2018 who have no interest in listening to a guy who makes you run laps now. Now, and think about this too. Now, the Jets had 48 points yesterday. They scored 31 points in the third quarter. There was, a, I think, there was a punt return, and maybe I think was there a pick six in the game too at some point. Yes. So not all 48 points were scored by the Jets' offense. So we'll put it that way. Yep. But if you're Matt Patricia and you've given up, your defense has given up this much in this game last night, and then go back to the Super Bowl. Yep. Like, I know where you're going, yeah. I mean, it's just, we're just talking two games here. Mm-hmm. But one of them was the Super Bowl, and then you had last night, week one of the season. I mean, I, how did this guy get hired? Well, because he's a Belichicker. Because teams How did can, he get hired? Because teams are uh, teams are going to and and I understand it's one game here, but but in defense of what we're saying here, when I saw the um OTA and minicamp stories about Patricia, you know, it's it's a new era of Lions football, right? And I'm mm-hmm. gonna run these guys 
and I'm not going to open this up to the media. And I'm going. I, I said to myself, I said to myself what I've said a thousand times before because whether it be guys that came from the Belichick tree and or guys that just watch Bill coach, there's only one Bill. Mm-hmm. There's only one Belichick, and owners continue to get bamboozled into thinking that if a guy comes in and starts spouting Belichickian-isms and saying that they're going to do this and do that and they're not going to do this and not do that and that they know they've got the answer, it usually doesn't work. It usually does not work. I mean, 2006, Manny, I got it for you. Mm -hmm. Brad Childress. Brad Childress' original goal before he decided, before he realized it didn't work in 2006. Um, uh, um, Or... uh, um. Before he realized that that, that act wasn't going to work, and became and tried to become Dungy in 2007 and 2006, he was going to be Bill Belichick. He was going to be the same guy. Culture of accountability. That, that's what yeah. it was. Remember, because that remember, was the season I, coming off. I covered the, it. There was season coming off the love boat thing, yep. and and I think Ticey had the ticket scalping thing too. I think, and yeah, Chili came in, and it was culture of accountability. Well, going to hold everybody accountable for all their. Whatever transgressions. Yes. And if you remember, that culminated in in a season that got off to a really nice start. Yeah. And they were four and two, I think. Yeah, they were. And at four and two, I said, damn, they might win this division. And they started to come unglued. And then if you recall, at the very end of that season is when uh, Marcus Robinson talked to the Pioneer. Was it Christmas Eve he He got cut on? He did a Q&A with the Pioneer Press and criticized Chile. And Chili flipped out, and he cut him on Christmas Eve, which Oof. which is as dumb as you could possibly be. I always said if I was the Wolves, I would have called Brad up and I would have flown him. I would have flown him to see us that day on Christmas Eve in Jersey, and I would have put him up at a Motel Six and said, "Think about what you just did. You're staying here." Um, that was as stupid as it gets. Mm-hmm. But then, but then that last game of 2006 was the Rams game where they got just. I was at that game. I remember absolutely annihilated. Yep. They got annihilated. Was Scott Linehan the Rams coach at yeah. that time, I yeah. think? Yeah, he was. And the Vikings didn't care. They totally... <laughs> but, but you know, but this all goes back to... This all goes back to the Belichick tree. Let's go through a little bit of that tree. Let's do it. Because we both were... Uh, we both were reminiscing today about the coaches that Bill, Be- Bill Belichick... Now, Matt Patricia, among the notable ones, is coach number five from the Belichick tree. Mm-hmm. Charlie Weiss... Patriots offensive coordinator from 2000 to 2004. He won three rings in New England. Yep. He then went 35 and 27 in five years at Notre Dame. 16 of those wins, however, in the final three years. Mm. Okay, that's not very good. There was a three and nine mixed in there, too, I think, in one of those final three years. And then he went to Kansas, that godforsaken football school, (laughs) and went six and 22 from 2012 to 14. Romeo mm. Cornell, Patriots mm-hmm. defensive coordinator from 2001 to 2004, also won three rings. And the one thing I will give him is I don't think he was crazy. The rest of the guys that I'm going to give you are, are sort of nuts. Romeo Cornell always struck me as a pretty sane human being. But four seasons in Cleveland, and kudos to him for surviving four seasons with the Browns. Because he had a 10-win season. He did. Derek Anderson. Yeah, I remember that. 24-40 and 40 in Cleveland. And he got fired from there and then went to Kansas City for two years of 4-15. and 15. Now it gets interesting. Eric Mangini, as you po- uh, pointed out before the show, once named Mangenius, yeah, goes to the Jets, Manny Hill, and goes ten and six in his first year with the Jets, and then proceeds to go four and twelve in two thousand seven, 
Nine and seven in two thousand eight, and With then Brett goes, Favre in two thousand eight. That's right, yep. and and then he goes, and then he goes to the Browns and has a pair of five and eleven seasons. <laughs> and finally, the last before uh, Patricia got his chance, or the last notable assistant, Josh McDaniels signs a four-year, eight million dollar contract to coach the Denver Broncos. He survives two years in 2009 and 10 and goes 11 and 17. Drafted Tim Tebow. He drafted Tebow. He he alienated Cutler. He's the only human being in, in the history of football to, to instead of being alienated right. by Jay Cutler, he alienated Jay That's Cutler. That's right, because he came in and he tried to trade. He wanted to trade for Matt Castle, right? Mm-hmm. Because Brady was coming back off the ACL because Matt Castle had the one year where he played really well for the Patriots. And McDaniel's got the Broncos job, and he tried to get rid of Jay Cutler and tried to trade for uh, yes for Matt Castle. But Jay Cutler, who spent his life and certainly his football career alienating people, actually turned on somebody because they made him <laughs> mad. So first year head coaches uh, through the weekend in week one, or or guys who are back as head coaches, because in the case of a guy like John Gruden, he is certainly not first year head coach. 0-7, Manny. We'll get to John Gruden a little bit here, too. 0-7. Gruden loses. Patricia, Pat Shermer, our guy. Nagy in Chicago. Steve Wilkes in Arizona. Frank Wright in Indianapolis. Mike Vrabel in Tennessee. 0-7. Mm. And, uh, yeah, the Gruden, okay. So the Patricia thing, I don't think is going to work. That's one game, that's one week, but I don't think it's going to work. The, no. Gr- the Gruden thing, I'm really curious about. The Gruden thing I am really curious about. Yeah, and in fact, uh, let's get into that right now. Park backed up. Oh, Picked wow. off. How sloppy was that? Corey Littleton with the interception. Flag is down on the return, and Carr is going to be so upset with himself. Yeah, you know, uh, obviously, I don't think it was a smashing debut uh, by any sense. We need to get more pass rush, and... Um, that goes for all of us, but like I said uh, at the beginning of this, I'm proud of the way our guys competed until the end, and mm. we'll have some more information for you after we study the tape. <laughs> you know, yeah, at the end, it was study the tape. I right? love that one. That 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 is that is code for because we saw it or heard it for years from Les Leslie Frazier, Frazier and yes. Ponder. That is code for we don't know what the bleep happened, so don't ask me. With Leslie too, you remember in the. Rare chance that Christian Ponder played well. What was Leslie like after every game? Oh, yeah, Christian played really well, made some mm. great throws, and that was just happy mm. to get a great win, blah, blah, blah. But whenever, if, if he ever threw like three picks or had a terrible game, yeah, we just got to look at the tape. Oh, gotta yeah. Look, got to look back at the tape. And now was Leslie or Christian was, was easily correctable, right? Yes. It was Christian who always said, because Leslie would come in because his press conference <laughs> post game was always first. So Leslie would always come in and say, mm, "Tough get de- tough day today. We got to go back and look at the tape, and and we'll find our mistakes and fix them." And Ponder would get up there then post Frazier and be like, "Oh, it's easily correctable." And at some point in time, you <laughs> want to say, "No, no, no, Christian, Christian, here's what's not easily correctable. We realized three weeks ago you're just not a good quarterback, right? You're so John Gruden, who is going to correct things, John Gruden." Was the Raiders coach and came in as the hot young young head coach at the age of 35 with Oakland, 1998. He is now back at the age of 55 
after an extended period of time away, and people are going to tell you, yeah, you know, but Gruden, Gruden was on Monday Night Football. He was still around the game. He was still. Yeah. I don't think it matters. Here's what I here's yeah, Manny. Boy. What I think is important to this story. It's 2018. John Gruden yesterday went up against the latest version of the hot young head coach, Sean McVay, mm-hmm. who was hired, I believe, at the age of 30. He's 32 now. Yep. It's 2018, and identifying with players 20 years later is completely different. Did it strike you during the course of that game last night that Derek Carr looked deathly afraid? Yeah. If he made a mistake, if he... Because Gruden is so in a quarterback's face continually. You know, McVay, watch McVay. He's incredibly laid back. He's really, really, really chill. Like, do you ever see Jared Goff get yelled at? I never, if it happens, it's it's in private. It's not in public. And Gruden, last night, is beat red. And every time Carr <laughs> comes to the sidelines, that second half, which was abysmal, yep. you know, he's seemingly in his face or he's right there. It's just funny because John Gruden is signed to a 10-year contract. And after watching... Which is unheard of in the NFL. I know. But after watching his style, after watching... Yeah. And, and he was he was a really good coach at one time. But mm-hmm. but things change. And the temperament of athletes changes. And it certainly We're has. We're talking almost 20 years I know. since he coached the Raiders. I know. He and has. he had the years with Tampa Bay. And the other thing with Tampa Bay, too, is like... There's always been the criticism of him that he won that Super Bowl with Tony Dungy's players. Now... The counter to that is that, okay, John Gruden did what Tony Dungy couldn't do, which was win the Super Bowl with Tony Dungy's players. But still, I mean, we're we're so far removed from even that. Yeah. That it, it's like, is this even going to work? Is his temperament, is his coaching style, is that going to work with today's player? And I don't know if it is. As far as I'm concerned, too, the athlete from 2000 to 2018, my, this might as well be a conversation about, 40 years difference. Mm-hmm. The athlete's totally different. And if you so, so if Rich Gannon was Gruden's quarterback and he got mad at Rich Gannon, I think Gannon would be like, yeah, you know what? You're right. You're mm-hmm. right. I'll be quiet and listen. You're going to turn beat red while you yell. And then we're going to sit down and we're going, but, but I get that. I get that. But how does Derek Carr handle that? Derek Carr looks like he wants to throw up. Right. Derek Carr looks like the kid on the schoolyard. And, and, that pick that you played, what was that pass? He, he he like threw it across the body. There was no Raider receiver within 15 yards of it. And then they show Carr afterwards, and he's like ripping his chin strap off, and he's just, you know, throwing his arms around. But it's like, dude, what, what were you doing? Right. What were you doing? Right. But then, what was that throw? But then the problem is, I don't think a lot of today's players, like that, may, if you're the coach, it makes you mad. And I completely get that. But I don't think a lot of today's players respond then to you being mad about it, which which is, it's probably a fault of how kids are raised now, but it's how they're raised. And if I got a quarterback who's a star athlete and I'm going to rant and rave and scream and yell and turn beat red, it's not going to help me. Right. So anyway, after- I, w- I, I want to play one more part. Oh, sure. I want to play the Gruden thing one more time. Sure. There was something else that he said, was, which was very, very interesting that I think a lot of people noticed. Yeah, you know, uh, obviously, I don't think it was a smashing debut uh, by any sense. We need to get more pass rush. <laughs> oh, you need to get more pass rush, hey, eh, John? Okay. 
he get, need to get more pass rush. Here's All my right. yeah. here's my question mm. for John Gruden that mm. I that I would if I was the interesting if I was the PR director for that team and I had the uh, gonads to ask this question. Here would be my question, John. You spent the last fifteen years in the booth. Is that right? Ten years, fifteen years. So you About are ten years, I think. So you are media savvy by now. Like you've been around. You've commented on what what coaches have said. You've certainly it's not it's not like you checked out and came back right. in that sense. So my question, if I'm the PR guy, is what would cause you to just have outed yourself about the Clil Mac trade? Like of all the things that you're going to say at the podium post game, and now I we wonder, didn't get what we needed from a guy who we traded. Yeah. Well, and I wondered that makes me wonder too. I mean, did how much did he play a role in that trade actually happening? Because the thought is that he played a major it would, role. It would in have that, to right? be huge, right, Manny? I would think, but it it's like, why would you, if you had that much of a role in a move like that, then why would you get up on the podium after your That's first game saying. and just be like, "Yeah, we need to get more of a pass do, rush." Do you, well, you just traded your pass rush away a couple of weeks ago. Do you think because you didn't want to pay him for one second that Reggie McKenzie of the Raiders actually made that trade without Gruden saying absolutely make it? No way. Right. Reggie McKenzie, as far as I can tell, is working for Gruden. But my question would be, John, you know the media. You've been in it for the last 10 years or more. You really just outed yourself on the Clil Mack trade that you just made. That, by the way, you just approved and, as you said, Manny, had a huge hand. It makes no sense. All right, uh... As I said, Mackie and Judd for hour one is Judd and Manny. Phil will join at four o'clock. Matthew Collar will uh, also join us at five o'clock to talk plenty of National Football League and Vikings. When we come back, Manny's three deep thoughts on the National Football League and college football, which probably means Tennessee. Don't go anywhere. More Mackie and Judd coming up next. Oakley Dokley. On 1500 ESPN. EOs on Mackie and Judd here at 1500 ESPN. Uh, 694 eastbound uh, between Rice Street and uh, Ramsey County Road 18 near Little Canada. Look out for a stalled vehicle. In fact, a lane is blocked there. So if you're traveling eastbound, 694. Once again, in between Rice Street and County Road 18, stalled vehicle, lane is blocked. Judd? Thank you, sir. TCL Broadcast Studios, Mackie and Judd. Manny Hill, of course, producing and also third voice on the show. Uh, Phil will join at 4 o'clock. But right now, if I can do this justice, Manny Hill, it's time for Manny's three deep thoughts on the National Football League and college football, which is going to mean some type of Tennessee item, is my guess, which means Chip Scoggins is certainly listening. <laughs> well, I will say this about uh, Tennessee, and, and, and it's not directly related to you. Tennessee, but it is, uh, it is a thought on uh, deep thoughts in the NFL, and, uh, and there's a college item in here too. But my first thought is, Former Tennessee Volunteers quarterback, he was there briefly, I believe, for one season, and then he went on to Pittsburgh where he got most of his accolades, whatever the hell they were. Nathan Peterman, Judd, on Sunday, 5 for 18. We touched touched on this a little bit yesterday. 5 for 18 passing for the Buffalo Bills as they got blown out by the Baltimore Ravens. He doesn't belong in the league, right? Uh, Apparently, they think he does because... This is the same guy last year, Judd, that threw five interceptions in a half. Well, a and, half and of this football. Is, this is also a guy that um, various Bill supporters were trying to talk up after some good preseason games. 
nothing happens in the preseason that's truly going to tip you off because teams don't game plan. Mm-hmm. Like nobody, nobody says, "Hey, week uh, two of the preseason, we're playing Peterman," and they say, "Oh no, we got a game plan for that game." I mean, I, I think I just think it's pretty clear that Buffalo has a guy who they're trying to force into playing because they don't want to play their rookie who shouldn't be in the league. And AJ McCarron was deemed expendable for I don't know why. I mean that that's that's a dumpster fire. And I know that they just made the playoffs in 2017, but the Buffalo Bills are the definition right now of a dumpster fire of a franchise as far as how they're being run. What I don't understand is, okay, you you get you bring in AJ McCarron. Why don't why aren't you just starting him? He's the one veteran guy, and and I understand. I think there was somebody that tweeted at us last week about how. Oh, well, you know, Peterman was the best quarterback for the Bills. In the, it doesn't, in mean, the, anything. It doesn't mean anything. A.J. McCarron actually has experience. Like, he has starting experience, and he's had some mild success in the NFL. Yeah. Why not just, look, I understand you drafted Josh Allen high. Why not just let McCarron play and be your bridge quarterback, and then when Josh Allen is ready to play, you play him? What is this obsession with Nathan Peterman? I think it's once again teams why trying to outsmart themselves, I, I, or it's teams outsmarting themselves because they feel that they they, they all think that they that they can bring in some quarterback that is man, terrible that they can fix them. I don't understand it. The hubris in football, Division One college and the National Football League, the hubris is off the charts. And the problem is, if you have hubris and you're Bill Belichick and you're really smart, guess what? You're going to win, and you can tell people to go shove it. The issue is the NFL has its share, and it's not widespread, I don't think, but it has its share of dumb people. Yeah. I mean, the Buffalo Bills are just terribly run. They're terribly run. And I think when you see a kid like Peterman throw five picks in a game, most of us say— In a oh, half. Or that's a just half. a game. Yeah. Yeah. A half. You say that's it. <laughs> you say that's it. Uh, second deep thought is uh, shout-out to uh, my guy, our guy, former contributor to the uh, Ride with Royce, uh, Herm Edwards, who is now 2-0 and as head coach of the Arizona State Sun Devils. A big win for them on Saturday night over Michigan State, 16-13, a come-from-behind win. They were down by 10 I in went, that game and came back and won. I went to bed in the fourth quarter, and Michigan State, I think, was up by 10 at that mm-hmm. point. Is that right? Yeah. And I said, okay, you know what? This game's done. I'm going to bed, and I woke up in the morning and saw that score, and... Uh, Equally, I think I was equally impressed that Arizona State came back, and I'm equally um, befuddled by what, what has quickly seems seems to have happened to that Michigan State football program. Yeah, they've come unglued here pretty quick. It's it's not it's not nearly as good as it was. I mean, they were Big Ten champion in the Rose Bowl just a few years ago, and the last couple of years it's been kind of blah and. Obviously, we know about everything that went on with Michigan State with the Larry Nasser thing and, and that that whole situation and why that institution did not get face any more punishment for that is, oh, that's you know, a, that's yeah. a whole other discussion. But, yep. yeah, I mean, the, the program is just not good. They barely beat Utah State the week before. I know. I watched that game. I and think then, it was a Friday night game. And then you lose, to, you lose to Arizona State. Now, maybe the Sun Devils are better than we thought. I hope they're better than we thought because I'm I'm pulling for Herm. I want Herm to do well out there. Yep. I think he can do well out there. But and it's interesting that we were just talking about John Gruden, the last the last segment about a guy who was so far removed from the league, ten years away from the league. Well, Herm hasn't coached a game in ten years either. And he's off to a pretty good start. I was absolutely different circumstances, but he's off to a pretty good start. I was shocked he took that job. 
Yeah, Herm. Aging guy with a cushy TV job at which he was really good. And basically they allowed, ESPN gave him the greatest platform of all time because he basically became their coach. So, like, if they want to talk about tennis, how would a coach coach tennis? They'd call Herm up. <laughs> Be like, here's what I would do on tennis. Um, I, I really, the Gruden, one, the Gruden one took a long time, but you always felt in the back of your mind he was going to get back in, into coaching. I really thought Herm was done. I thought Herm had found the ultimate niche of like niches. It. Yeah. But, I, but at the same time, though, don't you kind of get the sense that his personality fits well for the college game? Like, it was probably never... Yeah. He was never going to be a great NFL coach, and I think it kind of showed that. Yep, because his run in Kansas City didn't didn't end very well. But I I just get the sense he's got the kind of personality that could actually, even though he's I just thought he he's was an done. older guy. Yeah, you just thought like he I just mean, wasn't. If he had started coaching college football twenty years ago or fifteen years back, I would have said mm-hmm. absolutely. I just I thought he had the perfect niche in life. He'd show up in Bristol. I, he obviously didn't live there. I, I think he lived on the West Coast, right? Yep. So I just thought he had the perfect sort of situation for himself at that age. And uh, college coaching would be awful. Between coaching, yeah, but recruiting. Like if I'm Herm, do I, do I really want to be... 24-7, 365. On the pavement? I mean, just hearing about when Jerry Kill was coaching the Gophers, just hearing about like how he didn't sleep. He would go weeks and just sleep at the most like three hours a night. Yeah. Like, There's no healthy way to do that job and be yeah. successful. Yeah, unless you've got a hell of a good group of assistants that are going to pick up the slack for you. But but. Nick Saban won a national championship, and they said, what are you going to do to celebrate? And he's like, I'm going recruiting tomorrow. (laughs) I don't think there's any. Those guys are all, I I think if if they're successful, they're nuts. And I think that lifestyle would be awful. There you go. What's your third one? Uh, a third one is just, we kind of touched on it already, just first-year coaches going Mm -hmm. 0-7 over the course of week one, which... I don't know if that's happened before, but no, that's this is the worst ever. Yeah, I mean that that's pretty telling. And you look at some of the coaches that beat these first year coaches. These are coaches that were going into this season with some high expectations that they'd be in trouble if they did not have success. Todd Bowles being one of them, mm-hmm. and uh, so they they delivered and 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 got it done. Those coaches that are kind of on the hot seat. And Matt Nagy was up by how much? By twenty. I mean Sunday, you're up by twenty. You're off to an incredible start. Come and you wonder Matt. if the, you wonder if the inexperience with these first year coaches. Well, I mean Gruden. Well, the neg- Gruden's Gruden's a different coach, a different situation. The play but. Collar brought up, and he's right. When the Bears had that like fourth and one late in that game, and Jordan Howard had been having a very good game, and you decide we're not going to go for it, and I think they took the field goal, but you put the ball, or they did take the field goal. And man, you put the ball the ball back in Aaron Rodgers' hands. Stupid. I would hope that Zim wouldn't do it was that. Stupid. I would I, hope I that just, Zim wouldn't yeah. do that. All right, let's uh, let's take a break here. Come back, uh, talk some baseball next. Our regular Tuesday guest throughout the year, Jason Stark, will join us. We will talk about plenty thing of things, including uh, minutia and odd things that Stark loves to talk about. There were some weird happenings in baseball the past uh, week or so, so we'll talk about those with you. Instead of talking twins, talking baseball. The twins are really depressing now, so I think just talking <laughs> baseball is probably much more fair and apt so that people don't in mass tune out. Uh, I want to I start you with, with this, your a- athletic column from this past week about weird things uh, and, and the, the oddities of baseball that make this sport so great. Uh, describe in detail, because it was fantastic. 
the Todd Frazier, <laughs> the Todd Frazier catch in Dodger Stadium, and and what I loved about your piece was not just going in depth about the catch, but actually tracking down the person who was very involved in that catch slash non catch. <laughs> this is a great story. Yeah, my Pulitzer's in the mail. I hope. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, 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 a tremendous example of the dogged reporting I'm famous for. All right, it was, was good. It was really good, though. It was a fun read. Thank you. She uh, she was tremendous. So this was last week in Dodger Stadium on Monday night, and Alex Verdugo of the Dodgers hits a foul ball into the first row behind third base. Todd Frazier appears to make one of those highlight reel catches, tumbling into the stands, staggers to his feet, shows the umpire the ball. Web gems, sounds, sound effects in the background. Game goes on. Nothing unusual other than that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> turned out that the ball he held up to the umpire was not the ball that he quote unquote caught. It wasn't even a baseball. It was a rubber ball. <laughs> and here's how this happened. Uh, I, I tracked down the woman who brought the rubber ball to the park by accident. She's a Dodger fan named Erin McCone. Yep. She was sitting in the first row for the first time in her life. She took her uh, kids and her niece to the game. They brought a bag of balls to get autographs because they're sitting in the first row. They pull out the balls and realize that her son had inadvertently stuffed his rubber ball into the bag. So they get the real ball signed before the game, stuff them back in the bag, but the rubber ball's sitting out. And now here comes Todd Frazier. He lands in her lap. He falls onto the floor. The baseball comes out, and he sees his rubber ball there on the ground. (laughs) He picks it up, shows it to the umpire, and we had ourselves an out and a tremendous acting job. Right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. He was unfazed. He he was completely unfazed. It was in watching that. It was amazing that there was never even a hint from him of you're guilty of something here. Yeah, yeah. I like my line right that he deserved a uh, an award for best actor in a misleading role. Yes, that yeah, was very good. No, the fact. Now, how how did you you track her down? Because that was also great. And and as you said, her quotes were fantastic. She was great. Well, that that wasn't easy. Um, the reason that I was able to find her was, you know, she had no idea what actually even happened. Right? Mm-hmm. She noticed that Todd Frazier through the game uh, kept w- looking at them and kind of making eye contact. <laughs> and say, Do you believe that? But they didn't know what was going on. They thought he caught the ball till they got home, and you know, from r- realizing on social media that no, he didn't catch the ball. Uh, and so at that point, she tweeted at him, my son wants his ball back. <laughs> and that, that's when her 15 minutes of fame kicked in. So I, tr- I then tracked her down with the help of the Dodgers, actually specifically uh, their lead broadcaster, Joe Davis. She followed him on Twitter, not me. He was able to do, to message her and tell her I'm a great guy. He, she should talk to me. I'll I'll be great to talk to. Yep. And amazingly, said she said, "Yeah, sure, I'll do that." And that's how I found her. That was great stuff. 
Wow. Jason, uh, I wanted to ask you about J.D. Martinez, who's having an unreal season for the Red Sox. He's probably going to be the front runner for the MVP, I would imagine, in the American League. Um, h- how did this sort of happen with him? I mean, he's he had a good year last year, splitting between uh, Detroit and Arizona, but how did how did he get to be this good? Well, um, we should talk about AL MVP because I'm not sure that he is actually the favorite. Okay. Um, but we we can talk about that separately. But um, this is a guy who look, he could always hit. Uh, he he had bat to ball skills. In fact, I can still remember uh, after his first year in the big leagues. Uh, Brad Mills, who's now the Indians bench coach, was the manager of the Astros. And I remember him telling me the next spring, when J.D. Martinez hits a ball, it stays hit. You know, I love, love that expression. That's that good, means man. he hits the ball hard, right? But uh, he, he didn't have the whole launch angle thing down then. And that's how the Astros came to just non-tender him, uh, which is how the Tigers signed him for Pretty much nothing. Uh, between that, uh, during that offseason, between the, the Astros non-tendering him and the Tigers signing him, uh, he went to his own private hitting instructor, a guy who has helped a lot of people in the launch angle revolution, and he completely rebuilt his swing. You combine the rebuilt swing with his aptitude for hitting his fanatical preparation and his magnetic personality, mm-hmm. and this is what you get. Now, look, he's hit he's hit 300 with a with an OPS in that 1,000 range. This would be the, like the third year in a row. So, I mean, it, this didn't just happen, but it, it, we're so conscious of it now because he winds up in Boston and. Even though it's a there's a year intermission, he really essentially replaces Big Pappy in every way on that team. Mm. So does so does a guy who who has a fantastic year at the plate, but DHs the majority of the time, deserve to be the MVP of his league? Yeah, uh, you know MVPs are not generally DHs. I know uh, yeah. David Ortiz never won an MVP. Um, you, you know the whole Edgar Martinez story, right? And I actually think that right now Mookie Betts has an edge over him and by everybody. Uh, he, Mookie's first or second in the league in batting, on base, slugging, run scored, doubles, win probability added. He's top five in stolen bases, and he's the best defensive outfitter in the league. Uh, and he's the only guy in baseball who can roll a 300 game at the bowling alley on cue. <laughs> <laughs> so I think pretty he's probably guy, Jason a little Stark. bit above. Yeah, you know, even if you throw out the bowling factor, but it's really a fun race because you've got JD. And yep. It's possible those two guys divide the vote. Alex Bregman uh, is the heartbeat of the Astros. You know, they went two months without having Altuve, Correa, Springer at the same time. Mm-hmm. He's been their offense. Three weeks ago, I would have said Jose Ramirez. But he hasn't had a home run in almost 100 plate appearances. And he and Lindor could divide up votes. Hmm. Uh, Matt Chapman, you know, all we do is ignore the A's. We'll probably ignore ignore him in the voting, too, because of that. But he might be the best defender in the league at any position. And he's got as many extra base hits as Giancarlo Stanton. 
And then I think the hardest question is, where would we place Mike Trout? Because he was hurt, yep. because his team is so far off the radar screen. But uh, you think the seventh straight year in the top four for Trout? I do. So where? So if, if you were to cast a ballot today, what, what would that look like, one through four? Uh, I believe I would go Mookie, J.D., Bregman, Trout, Ramirez right now, but we got three weeks to go. All right, time for a trivia question that Jason Stark I hope is not as hard as last week's because I had no shot at last week. <laughs> we Manny and I had no we shot had no last chance. week. Yeah, what was it? Juan Rincon. I'll fire an evil question Ooh. out there. That was definitely in the category. So here, here's one. Speaking of Alex Bregman, I you know I was watching the Astros last night, and Alex Bregman's closing in on 50 doubles. He already has 30 homers. Now, no twin has ever done 50 doubles, 30 homers, but in history, mm-hmm. there has been one twin who once had 40 doubles and 30 homers. So see if you can name them. 40 doubles and 40 doubles, 30, 30 homers. And 30 homers. Uh, all right, we're, we're going to chat here for a second. Yeah. So th- yeah. these are not official guesses. Um. So if it's 30 homers, Manny Killebrew would be a potential option. Yeah. Because he could certainly hit doubles as well. Um, the the stark answers seem to ordinarily, when in doubt, Brunansky. He loves Brunansky. I think we've had like I'm, three Brunansky uh, <laughs> answers for you. Well, Thoughts, see. Manny? Well, Kirby hit 30 home runs one year. I think he hit 31 and like 86, or it might have even been 87. Okay. But I don't know if he hit 40. Did he hit 40 doubles that year? Let's try it. Kirby Puckett. Kirby Puckett. Official answer. Kirby Puckett. Uh, no. <laughs> Kirby was so close. Kirby's done the 40 doubles and he's done the 30 homers, but he never did them in the same year. The closest he came was 86, 31 homers. 37 doubles. 40 wow. doubles is a lot of doubles. Yep. Yes, it is. Yep, It's a lot of doubles. Got to be a hell of a hitter, right? Yes, you do. Um, Killebrew? Was Killebrew right? Killebrew never close in the doubles. Okay. Never. The only one, the only other one I can think of is Morno. Uh, Morno also is one of those guys. He had a 40 double season. Right, three, he obviously had, oh. had three in a row, Jason Stark. Yeah, Who, never did it the same year. Who is it? Uh, okay, so you're out, right? Yes, we're out. Yep. The the correct answer is Tony Oliva as a rookie, sixty four. Oh, I wouldn't have got. Wow. I wouldn't have got the home runs. Three doubles. Oh wow! 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 Which which begs the question: We have to ask Hall of Famer in your mind or not? Uh, I, you know what? I in his final year in the ballot. I voted for him. He was—he's right on the line. Yep, right yeah. on it. He's—he's uh, he's one of those many guys who, you know, people think it's so much fun voting for the Hall of Fame. It's, it's <laughs> candidates like Tony Oliva that make it not as much fun. I would it's so hard. I would guess. All right, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Enjoy it, guys. Thanks. See you, Jason. Jason Stark, the Athletic. Uh, check out his work at that site. Also uh, does some great stuff for uh, Stadium TV as well. Check him out. Uh, we have Mackie coming in studio at 4 o'clock. Uh, Collar joining us at 5 o'clock. Plenty more to go. Judd and Manny right now. We're in the TCL broadcast studios. The Belichick tree that we missed. Al Groh 
one year with the Jets. Oh, yeah. Who I think went on to coach at Virginia, Virginia. right? yeah. Nick Saban, and this is correct, his time with the Dolphins. Oh, yeah. And is, isn't that when he said, I am not taking the Alabama job? I'm not going to be the Alabama coach. Yeah. So that yeah. qualifies okay, Nick. Saban as a National Football League clown. Yep. And then, and I, I forgot this one completely, if he's from the tree, Jim Schwartz. And oh, Bill, that's right. And Bill O'Brien, who, of course, now is at Houston and Belichick yeah. just beat on Sunday. I, for, I, forgot, I forgot Schwartz, Schwartz as part of that yeah. tree. So was he? He was on the Patriots staff before I think the Lions. I th- he was like. A, Is this the second time that the Lions have gone to the Patriots? Well, I think it might be. What idiots! I think- <laughs> Don't you learn? When, yeah, I know. Well, I I think I think Jim Schwartz was like an assistant, like defensive backs coach in like the mid two thousands, maybe before he got the Lions job. Maybe. Okay, I just because well, he was he was a coordinator you do this again in Tennessee. To yourself, I thought too, maybe he was. He was definitely. De- that's why I forgot he came. He came to the Lions as a hot defensive coordinator with the Titans, and I want to say that he had used the the now much more common. I think what what's it called because they have they have numbers for all positions and basically gaps on the defensive line that wide nine where. Where was a Kyle Vandenbosch who would line up way wide right and he had a ton of sacks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Schwartz had all these defensive things, but that was a Titans deal. Defensive coordinator for the Eagles right now. He's doing pretty well. And no, 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 but nobody's. (laughs) But as a head coach, nobody's saying the Belichick tree isn't, doesn't churn out really good assistant coaches, but that doesn't make you head coaching material. And for the most part, the guys on the Belichick staff are not head coach material. And I I, I remember this now, and I, I just looked up Jim Schwartz. I brought up his Wikipedia page. He was a personnel scout for the Browns from 93 to 95. Oh, that's where he came into the... Yeah, and I remember that now because the uh, I think it was a 30 for 30 on the Browns, Belichick's run with the Browns. It's fantastic. And and there's there's a little bit where they show, I think they show Jim Schwartz. He's like 22 or whatever he is um, at that time on the staff. Go back and look, Manny, at that first Browns coaching staff that Belichick had. Go back and look at that picture. There's two pictures. There's two coaching pictures from the '90s that, if you go back and look, it I think Nick Saban's got mind. like the big, the he big, huge, nerdy glasses awful. on. And <laughs> but that Brown, but that Brown, that Belichick Browns team as an assistant coaching staff. I think Mangini was, and I'm not joking, the, the guy who went and got pizza for the media. And the other one, go back to, is Holmgren's first staff at Green Bay '92. Mariucci, Andy Gruden, Reed. Andy Reid was the quarterbacks coach for Favre. Okay, go back and look at that one. And you will find you see like four, five faces. Was, Chili wasn't on that staff. Well, Chili was no, coaching Chili at Wisconsin. Was, right? Chili was at Wisconsin and tipping his hand because that's the last place I believe before he got to the Vikings that he was allowed to call plays. And Badger fans couldn't stand him. And that's at Wisconsin where they just ran the ball. Right. Chili took heat <laughs> as Barry's OC at Wisconsin for his play calling. And Andy would never let him call plays, and he didn't call plays again until he got here in 2006 when he sent Marcus Robinson into the middle of the field to end a game in Buffalo despite the fact that all his assistants said, Brad, you can't run that play. The clock will run out. Um, uh, um, or, uh, um. Mackie joins next. People, people, I have an important announcement. Mackie and Judd are back after this brief timeout. On 1500 ESPN.